Well, good morning. It's great to see you. I just, before we jump in, I just want to honor you and thank you for your generosity and your heart for those who are in need. Thank you for being so generous when you give to Kingdom Builders. So I'm a part of the team at Convoy of Hope. And tomorrow when you wake up uh, and you go to work, you go to the store, maybe you're going to summer school, whatever it is you're doing, maybe you're going on vacation tomorrow, I don't know. But tomorrow when you wake up in 37 nations around the world, 533,000 children in some of the poorest, most deplorable locations on the planet are going to eat a meal. And when we give a cup of cold water, when we give a plate of food, we do it in his name. So I want to thank you for your generosity in places like South Sudan and Burkina Faso, in places like Iraq, in places like Nicaragua, in places like Eastern Europe, as we continue to serve millions of refugees who have poured out of Ukraine. I want to thank you for your generosity and for your kindness to the Lord. When you give to Kingdom Builders, you partner with organizations like ours, like Convoy of Hope. I just want to honor you for that. We're living in an age where, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, it puts it this way. It says, the love of most is growing cold. That means love is a new idea. It means that love is a sign and a wonder. And when you choose to love people and you choose to steward your resource in a way to where it puts on display the kindness of God for people who have been impacted and devastated because of a natural disaster or because of various life circumstances, it truly changes and transforms lives forever. So thank you for your kindness. Today I want to talk to you briefly about catching a fresh glimpse of God. Isaiah chapter 6, if you have your Bible, your iPhone, Droid, Galaxy, whatever you have, and if you have nothing, fortunately we're at a church that has screens. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe, it filled the temple. And above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings with two, He covered his face with two, he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Verse 5, so I said, Woe is me. I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched Your lips, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who shall go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. I want to ask you this question. Does an encounter with God, does a moment with God change everything? Well, it certainly can. But more often than not, a moment, and I really like the word encounter, an encounter or a collision 
with the God of heaven, more often than not, it changes one thing. And that one thing ultimately impacts everything. When I met Jesus when I was 17, I'm the first Christ follower in my ancestry that we know of. And I had a lot of things in my life when I was 17 and I met Jesus that changed automatically. But there were many other things that did not change. How many of you know when you become a Christian, you don't have spiritual amnesia? Right? You become born again. You are a new creation in Christ. But you still need to do the good work and often the hard work and renew your mind. And each one of us are as close to Jesus as we want to be. And when you start walking with Jesus, your job, our role is not to memorize what God is like. Our opportunity is to become like Him. And we do that by sometimes humbling ourselves. We do that by saying no to the wrong things. But more importantly, we say yes to the right things. And it is this lifelong journey. It doesn't matter if you have a PhD. It doesn't matter if you've gone to church for 20 years or this is your first Sunday. It doesn't matter where you come from or what type of home you've grown up in. Each one of us have to wake up each and every day and choose this day whom we're going to serve. Are you with me? Does an encounter with God change everything? More often than not, it changes one thing. And that one thing it changes would be our perspective of or our understanding of who God really is. And the Bible is clear that God never changes. But there's this saying in ancient Judaism that the Torah or the first five books of the Bible have 70 faces. They talk about the 70 faces of the Torah. And what they're saying is, although God never changes, every time you look in his direction, every time you look and glance at him, you catch a new perspective of how beautiful and how magnificent he really is. And that's what's going on in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah has this encounter or this collision with the reality of God. And as you'll see in the chapters that follow, it does not change everything, but it changes his understanding of who God is. It changes his perspective of who he is as a person. And from that one thing, everything else is impacted. So when you read the Bible, it's important to understand what it meant. If you want to understand what it means, you have to understand what it meant. We know that Scripture is not written with a Western mindset. It's not even written with a primarily a Greek mindset. It's a Hebrew mindset. We know that Jesus, when He speaks to us through His Word, through what the Holy Spirit inspired the writers to put down, that they're not necessarily just talking to Americans. How many of you know when you open up the scriptures in a remote village in Burkina Faso, you're encountering the same God that we are here at Summit Park? And that's important to remember because when we come to the scripture, we bring our experiences and our education and our understanding with us, and that's good. But more often than not, in this life with God, our challenge is not what we don't know. Our challenge is what we think we know. So when we come before the Lord and we open up the Word, it's important to unlearn what we think we know. So if we want to understand what it means, we have to understand what it meant. So what's going on in Isaiah 6? Well, there's a lot I don't know, but I'll do my best to explain it. So Isaiah, the book of Isaiah is not in chronological order. We know that because in chapter 6, 
it references King Uzziah. In chapter 1 of Isaiah, it references King Ahaz. King Uzziah actually lives before King Ahaz, and it's not in chronological order. That's important because if you read it, starting in chapter 1 and you plow through, I think it's chapter 66, I can't remember, and you read through the whole book, it seems a bit discombobulated and a bit back and forth, and that's okay because the book of Isaiah is kind of like um, um, turning the page of a book, and you can turn to the end of the book, you can start at the beginning of the book, and the subject hasn't changed. It's God. But it's not in chronological order. And in this encounter, this moment Isaiah has with God, it starts off with, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So he places his encounter with God in the context of the death of an earthly king named Uzziah. So who is Uzziah? Well, King Uzziah was the king over Judea. Um, His reign as an earthly king comes to an end around the year 739 B.C., if you want to juxtapose that in history, okay? So King Uzziah, when he becomes leading the nation, he, one of the things he does is he mobilizes the nation's military. And so he weaponizes his nation. And one of the things that historians and scholars and archaeologists talk about related to King Uzziah is the weaponry of his army was highly sophisticated. So because his weaponry was sophisticated and he mobilizes his army, the Israelites became stronger on the battlefield, and they actually conquered the Philistines. Back then was a, quote, arch enemy of ancient Israel. They conquered the Arabians, which is something very few people did. And he forced the Ammonites, which was a people group, to pay tribute to his kingdom. And so he is mighty in battle. Some of the enemies that Israel was used to for centuries have now been defeated, and some of those enemies are actually supporting his economy. He became very proficient at digging water wells. Now, one of the things we do at Convoy of Hope is we provide clean water to people who don't have it every day. 16,000 children die from food and water-related causes. It's not enough to just feed a hungry child. You have to provide uh, clean, uh, potable water. So anyway, one of the things that King Uzziah did is he dug water wells. I've been in parts of the world where there is no water. I've been in parts of the world where um, radicals dig water wells, and literally I've been in villages where at the top of water wells there's a sign that says, if you choose to convert to and then it lists their religion, you can draw water from the well. If you choose not to convert, then you and your family go thirsty. There are places in the world where people weaponize water. Water, wars are fought over water. So King Uzziah, he digs water wells. And because he digs water wells, now his, his nation has access to a resource that makes it possible to engage in animal husbandry and agronomy and agriculture. And so the nation's economy begins to thrive because they have water, they have food, they have fruits, vegetables, meats. And the natural resource and the natural infrastructure of his nation has been developed. So they are at a place of safety and success. Their personal livelihood has increased and everyone is thriving. And one day, on a random day, 
a day like all other days, King Uzziah walks into the temple and he attempts to burn incense in the house of the Lord, which probably doesn't mean much to us because maybe when you vacuum the house, you light your candle from anthropology, maybe you burn some incense to take the smoke out of your house because you smoked a brisket for 12 hours. It doesn't mean much to us. But when you burned incense in the house of the Lord at this time in 8th century B.C., it was a, a ritual, a sign of worship that the only people who were permitted to do that were the descendants of Aaron, the high priest. So King Uzziah, somebody who mobilizes the military, who bolsters their national economy, everybody is striving and living in prosperity. At the apex or the height of success, he does something that seems good. He is going to worship God by burning incense. And as soon as that happens, and the scriptures testify of this, he is struck with leprosy. Have you ever been in contact with someone who has leprosy? I have. We serve in leper camps around the world. When you come in contact with people who are leprous, um, it is often horrific to look upon them. The extremities of their bodies will waste away and die away and fall off. He is struck with leprosy because of his act of disobedience and for the rest of his life, not a week, not a month, for the rest of his life, he lives in seclusion, a leper, until he dies. At the height of success, he becomes very casual with the sacred things of God. And it's an important reminder for us, isn't it? That the ways of God, our relationship with God, should always be treated as something sacred. We serve a God, a Father, who is approachable. The Bible says He dwells in inapproachable light. That means we're not supposed to even be able to come before Him. And yet we're also told in Scripture, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. Why? Because we have a high priest, his name is Jesus, who is able to sympathize with us in our time of need. We don't deserve to worship God. We don't deserve to talk to God. We don't even deserve to know his name, and yet we can. And King Uzziah's death and, and his judgment through leprosy, it's a reminder that we can never allow the subtle compromises in our life to redefine how we approach a holy God. On the day that King Uzziah is struck with leprosy, that's when the prophet Isaiah gives his first prophecy. The prophet Isaiah is very different than the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel is what you could call a blue-collar prophet. He worked and lived among the villages. He rarely found audience with the nation's king. But Isaiah, according to Jewish tradition, Isaiah's father was the brother to the king. So Isaiah grew up in a circumstance where he had access to leadership. He had access to power. He didn't know what it was like to live on the outskirts of the Judean kingdom where the Philistines would often come in and raid the villages and weaponize things like food and water. No, Isaiah lives a life of um, prestige. 
And in a moment, his entire world is flipped upside down. In a moment, his political, social, economic world changes. And this is when Isaiah 6 happens. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And what did he see? What does it say? I'll read it again. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple. When his world is flipped upside down, he catches another glimpse of God. A God who never changes. He slows down long enough to have yet another glance. In the morning, when you wake up, before you go to work, before you pick up your phone and check your email, you come before God and you open up the scripture and you pray and you pursue him. What are you doing? You're catching another glimpse. You're, you're, you have another glance at God. He sees the Lord when Uzziah dies. And Isaiah's encounter with God reveals how inferior or ephemeral our life can be without the nearness of God. In verse 1, it says, the train of God's robe fills the temple. At this time in history, when you conquered another kingdom, what you did is after you defeated the soldiers on the battlefield, you brought the humiliated king and the humiliated royal family in front of your king and or queen, and you stripped all of the jewels off of the crown of your, um, of the defeated king and queen and the entire royal family, and you sewed the jewels on the train of your king's robe. So the longer your king's robe was, the more valiant your king's armies were in battle. When a king paraded through the streets and the king had a three-foot robe or the king had a 30-foot robe, the 30-foot train on a king's robe meant, don't mess with this guy. His armies are mighty. Isaiah sees the Lord and the train of his robe fills the temple. In Hebrew, it is what's called a present progressive. It literally says the train of his robe kept filling and filling and filling and filling and filling and filling the temple. The train of the Lord's robe never stops coming. What's he saying? He's saying that God, the commander of the angel armies, he is always mighty in battle. That no matter what you experience and no matter what you think or feel, because you can't always believe everything you think or feel, no matter what your experience says to you, he always wins in battle. The train of his robe kept filling and filling and filling the temple. And this is quite different than his experience with his earthly king, King Uzziah, who was mighty in battle, but yet because of a subtle compromise because he allowed the things of God, the sacred things of God to become casual and he treated them like happenstance. He juxtaposes an earthly king and a heavenly king and he realizes that the way God leads is very different than the way people on the earth lead. He also reminds us that we should never derive our theology or our beliefs about God from the disappointments we have in life. We must anchor ourselves in the truth that's found in the Word of God. And Isaiah is in awe. And according to what he records in Isaiah chapter 6, evidently the angels are in awe of God too. 
verse 2, this is what it says. It says, above it, above the throne stood seraphim. Seraphim are a type of an angel. In the Bible, you have different types of angels. You have cherubim, seraphim, nephilim, different types. These are seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. The angels are crying out, but they're not crying out to God. They're crying out to one another. In ancient Hebrew, whenever you want to show emphasis on something, you double the word. So, for example, last night, my family and I, we went out to eat with the Greens. And we went to, what is it, Third Street Social? Yeah, so we sit down, and it's, a, it's an amazing menu. Have you guys ever been there? Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. You look at the menu. My man ordered pimento cheese. Thank you again. And so I'm feasting on some pimento cheese, looking at the menu. My eyes immediately land on the pastrami. I like a good pastrami. I like Italian cold cuts, but I like a good pastrami. And all of a sudden, you start talking about the fried chicken. And he didn't just say the fried chicken's good. You start talking about it's got the right amount of crisp, the right amount of heat. Nashville, hot is what you need to order, Heath. So because of Zach's description of their Nashville-style fried chicken, I did something I typically wouldn't do. I said no to the pastrami, and I got the fried chicken, and it was the right decision, okay? I ate it all. I ate half of a chicken last night and half a cauldron of mac and cheese. I'm feeling good today, okay? So the only reason I changed my order is because the way you describe chicken. So let's say Pastor Zach speaks ancient Hebrew. When we're sitting at the restaurant, you would have said, this Nashville-style fried chicken is great, great. If you want to show emphasize on a word in ancient Hebrew, you double the word. You look nice, nice today, honey. Or you look beautiful, beautiful, honey. The Kansas City Royals are a good, good team. Okay? So you, you double the word if you want to show emphasis. You, you never triple the word. You never triple the word. But in the Bible... The word is tripled when it's talking about God's holiness. The angels cry out to one another, holy, holy, holy. They're in awe of the holiness of God. What is holiness? It's beautiful brilliance. It's breathtaking beauty. It's not just an absence of sin. What makes God beautiful is he is sinless. Holiness is not just I don't do bad things. Holiness is I am breathtakingly beautiful because there is nothing dark in me. He is holy, holy, holy. And the holiness of God, the nearness of God, shakes and displaces temporary things. It says the doorposts of the temple were shaken. One of the best things you can do if you want things that are decent and good but not great in your life to fall away, one of the best things you can do is just come into the presence of God 
and let the presence and the holiness and the beauty of God expose you to what life is really supposed to be about. It's about knowing Him. It's about loving God and loving others. When we struggle with anxiety, because anxiety is an inferior reality. It was never part of God's original design. It doesn't mean we're bad people if we're anxious. It just means we come into the presence of God and allow those inferior things that are not part of God's best for us, they fall away. Holy, holy, holy. His holiness displaces temporary things, even the doorposts. And Isaiah is traumatized. In verse 5, it describes his experience. He says, woe is me. He does not say, woe are the bad people. He does not say, woe are the politicians. He is not saying, woe is my country. He says, woe is me. When we come into the presence of God, the only logical and rational response is humility. It's humility. He says, woe is me. He is not insecure. Humility is not the same thing as insecurity. Humility is not passivity. Humility is, someone once said, I don't know who said this. I'd give them credit. I just can't remember. Humility is when you place your God-given confidence in the right spot. I like that. Because humility is not weak. Humility is strong. Right? You know, oftentimes we talk about spiritual warfare, and that's, that's real. I mean, what you see is not all that there is. I mean, we just read in Isaiah 6, there's angels. I mean, angels are real. It's not just a first century phenomenon. It's not just an eighth century phenomenon. I mean, there are angels. There's a lot going on that we don't understand, right? There's a lot going on we don't have words for. But the Bible says that God opposes the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. And oftentimes, I'm convinced we blame a lot of the stuff we deal with in life on the devil. And it's not the devil at all. It's God opposing you because he finds pride. Sometimes the strategy is not faith, prayer, fasting. Sometimes the strategy is, I just need to humble myself. I've been trying to do this for like nine straight months, and it's not working. Maybe it's not the devil. Maybe it's just, maybe I'm proud. Not always, but sometimes. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. The Bible describes Abraham as being a blameless man. But when Abraham encounters God, you can read this, Genesis 12 through 21. He's a blameless man, but when he encounters God, he falls down before God. He's blameless. Like his relationship with God trumps everybody's relationship with God in this room, I mean pre-Jesus, for Abraham at least, and he falls down before God because he knows God is not impressed. Hmm. Isaiah says, woe is me. He curses himself. He humbles himself. And then he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. Now remember, Isaiah is a prophet. His influence comes from what he speaks. He makes his living by what he speaks. He is an advisor to the most powerful leader in his nation. He comes in contact with God, and 
The most important thing in his life is rubbish. It's refuse compared to God. He says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Everything I'm good at, it means nothing compared to him. I'm a man of unclean lips. And in that moment, something very interesting happens. And we just have to believe what it says. In verse 6, it says, an angel takes a coal with tongs. He uses tongs, takes a coal from the altar and flies and touches Isaiah's lips with it. What in the world is that about? Well, first, I want you to notice something. Isaiah confesses first, and then he is cleansed. He says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And then an, an angel cleanses his lips. And this is the way it works. Confession is made unto salvation. There is a cleansing available for us. There is forgiveness available for us, but it comes after we confess. We must humble ourselves and confess, and then grace comes. We must never presume upon God's grace. We can never assume that God is just grace, 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 grace. Grace is available and accessible to all after you confess. But what's also happening here is God is using a cultural phenomenon to communicate to Isaiah. Because here is the culture. At this time in history, if, if somebody accused you of a crime, you were brought in front of a court or a tribunal. And someone walked over to a stone brick furnace and they took tongs and took coals or stones that were heated to 900 degrees Fahrenheit and walked up to the person who was accused and put them on your lips. And if you blistered, the gods deemed you guilty. How many of you know everybody was guilty? <laughs> right? So they touched your lips with hot coals. Isaiah would have known this cultural phenomenon. What, what is God doing? God is speaking to Isaiah in a language he understands. And God still does this today. When a father scoops up his new baby in his arms and he catches a glimpse of what God the Father is really like. When you wake up in the morning and you look at the sunrise and you catch that hue of pink and purple and you realize, oh, he is the creative one. If he can speak and the sunrise is so beautiful, maybe just maybe when I open up God's word today and he speaks to me, something beautiful as well will happen in my life. God speaks to us in a language we understand. When Jesus healed the leper, he didn't just say be healed. He touches the leper. And he speaks your language. And I love this about God. Because at this time in history, the gods only associated with the wealthy and the elite, but not Yahweh. This is how Isaiah describes God toward the end of Isaiah's life. Isaiah 66, 2. The Lord says, this is the one to whom I will look. Him who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Isaiah's understanding of God changes. At the end of the story I read to you, we catch a glimpse of a conversation God is having, and God asks a question in heaven. Who can I send? What do you mean, God? God is, God is saying, I want to send somebody to my people to be a prophet. But Isaiah was already a prophet to God's people. And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. What does Isaiah do? 
he volunteers to go back and do what he had always been doing. But this time it'll be different. Because sometimes when you encounter God, what you do doesn't change, but how you do it does. Does an encounter with God change everything? certainly can. But more often than not, it changes one thing. And that one thing is our understanding of who God is. And in light of that, our understanding of who we are. And from that one thing, everything else changes.